Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Be Bold America. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Be Bold America is a live, bi-weekly talk show for those who are motivated to step out with the bold actions necessary to reunite this country, fight for our democracy, and learn what they can keep doing, stop doing, and start doing to reclaim our democratic republic. What are you doing today to save our country? Our future depends on it. Our program today is a national reckoning on racism. The former governor of Alabama has a few things to say about systemic racism and police abuse of power. With his years of experience facing and addressing racism, former Governor Don Siegelman has a unique and deep perspective on Donald Trump claiming the Confederate flag is a symbol of freedom of speech. In addition, as seen through his lens of experience, he will present his views about Confederate statues, renaming the Edmund Pettus Bridge, police power and abuse, education, uh, after-school jobs, higher minimum wage, tax reform, and imperative, and that it's imperative to change policies, politics, and the law now. In addition, Dr. Pettus Perry, Walden University leadership and management professor, will join this national reckoning on racism conversation. As a side note, Dr. Perry believes his father changed the spelling of his name from using a U in Pettus to an I when his father saw the bridge name named after the KKK Grand Jig Dragon Edmund Pettus. We have big things to do. Our first interview guest today is former Governor Don Siegelman, who is the author of Stealing Our Democracy, How the Political Assassination of a Governor Threatens Our Nation, that recently became a hot top five book listed on the National Book Review. Governor Don Siegelman is the only politician in Alabama history to hold all of the state's top constitutional offices, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, and secretary of state. Before we ever heard of the phrase cancel culture, Governor Siegelman, back in 2006, was canceled right out of his duly elected office of governor and his home of Alabama by Karl Rove and Jack Abramoff because they perceived Governor Siegelman a future political threat. 100 attorneys general from states across the nation tried to save him. They knew he'd not committed any crime. His astounding story of his becoming a political prisoner in America is now recounted in the documentary Atticus and the Architect. Welcome back to Be Bold American, Governor Siegelman. It is an honor to speak with you again. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be with you, uh, Jill, as well as Dr. Perry. I look forward to sharing the hour with, uh, with him as well as you. Uh, the, the point of my book, uh, Stealing Our Democracy, is not to tell my story, but to alert people to the dangers that we face in America today. Um, if, if they can take out a sitting governor uh, with the resources that I had to fight back, is it any wonder that um, men of color, men and women of color, represent uh, nearly a year, three times in the prison population, three times their presence in the population? In, the, in prison, they're, 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 they're more than three times the amount of African-Americans in prison as there are whites based on their presence in the population. So if they can, if they can bring down a sitting governor, uh, 
you know, Jill, uh, they can bring you down, they can bring Dr. Perry down, and think of what they can do to an unemployed uh, you know, farmhand or uh, someone who is uh, working as a mechanic or a hairdresser. And so the stealing our democracy is about protecting the most vulnerable from abuses of power. And that means the abuse of power by police, by prosecutors, and by presidents. And um, I look forward to uh, to getting into those subjects in in detail as we move forward in this hour. So do I, uh, Governor Siegelman, and to bring uh, Dr. Pettis Perry into the conversation now. He's a full time faculty member at Walden University, where he teaches a variety of leadership and management courses. He provides technical assistance and training to an array of schools, government agencies, nonprofit organizations and small and large businesses. In response to students describing their personal traumas and in response to the trauma produced by the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Perry produced webinars titled Creating a Meaningful Life in the Aftermath of Trauma and Self-Care in Times of Crisis, Living in a Topsy-Turvy World. Well, welcome back to Be Bold America, Dr. Perry. It is also a pleasure to have you on the show again. Thank you, Jill, and I'm deeply honored as well, Governor, to be able to spend this time with you. Very much looking forward to your story. I have uh, watched your documentary, and it's unconscionable what they've done to you. Um, But as you noted, if they can do it to you, they can do it to anybody. So I'm looking uh, forward to this discussion, and hopefully we'll be able to get into the dirt and really (laughs) roll around a little bit on this topic. Well, back to you, Governor Siegelman. To kick off the discussion, you related in your book a story about a captain, what a captain said to you when you were a Capitol Hill police officer. Can you tell us that story and then expand your, on your thoughts on police power and abuse? <laughs> yeah, I think that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's certainly a good place to, uh, to start because um, I had been working with Congressman Howard Lowenstein on uh, a the abuse of power of police and National Guardsmen in the wake of the killing of uh, the uh, black students at uh, Jackson State University and, and uh, at the Kent State and police abuse of power in other universities around the, around the country. And as I was waiting for a job at the Department of Justice in the criminal section of the Civil Rights Division, that was going to focus on those issues, I took a job as a Capitol Hill police officer, um, thinking it would, you know, give me three weeks of pay and, and give me time to, you know, get ready for my security clearance to work at the Department of Justice. Uh, after our training, we met the trainees, the recruits, met with the captain in the basement of the United States Capitol, where he told us uh, in so many words, he said, you know, there's one important thing that we haven't discussed, and that is cop killers don't get away. If one of your officers is shot, you shoot back to kill, and then you have a throwdown weapon. And he pulled a, a gun out of his back pocket and held it up with two fingers. He said, you, you have a throwdown weapon, and you throw it down, and you, you have, you, have uh, you know, basically killed somebody in self-defense. And... 
we were being told in the basement of the capital of the United States how to get away with murder. And this is part of the police culture that we have to, we, you know, that we're, we're protesting against now and from, you know, from Portland to Miami and, and, and all across the United States. Uh, it is a, it is our time now to insist that police be rehired, uh, and that the, that, uh, and Dr. Perry, of course, can, is probably an expert on this, but, that police, uh, you know, should no longer have the roles as warriors, uh, but as guardians of the community. Uh, we we see so many examples of this where police move in, whether it's uh, you know strangling Eric Gardner on the streets of New York uh, because he was selling a single illegal cigarette, alleged illegal cigarette, or you know. Killing uh, George Floyd, or the way you know, uh, uh, Tamar Rice, or I mean, it goes on and on and on. It's, it's an endless stream of, 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 of you know, the abuse of power, and it focuses on men and women, particularly men of color, um, particularly black men, African American men, and unfortunately, that it, this is all part of our history. Uh, since the founding of this country, and we've we've simply got to this is part of the systemic racism that we'll talk about tonight, but it's it's almost embedded in our DNA, and we've just got to fight against it at every every step of the way. Um, so, you know, you have that example of uh, of of. You know, of, of what I experienced personally, but you know, it's uh, it's evident to to so many people who watch television have seen, you know, a police officer chase a black man down and shoot him in the back, and then it appears that he has a throwdown weapon to make it look like he was, uh, you know, that the person who was murdered had a had a weapon. So we just uh, there, there's so much we have to guard against and change, and that's what I mean when I say that. Um, you know, we've got to change policies, we've got to change politics, and we've got to change laws. Uh, policies can be changed by mayors. Uh, 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 policies can be changed by governors or presidents. And, and you know, so politics is involved in electing those good mayors and those good governors and those good presidents. And then we've got to seek to change laws, specific laws, that will put an end to the abuse of power as best we can, both at an initial stage of when it goes to a grand jury, but also putting an end to the abuse of power uh, in terms of the, uh, the sentences that are meted out against uh, men and women of color uh, that absolutely make no sense, and protecting people from the abuse of power of presidents who politicize the Department of Justice, uh, either to go after their political enemies, as what happened to me in the Bush administration, or to protect the president from uh, from being subjected to the laws, as Bill Barr apparently views his job. So we've got lots to talk about tonight, and I'm going to be quiet for a while. 
<laughs> oh, thank you, Governor Siegelman. Well, um, Dr. Perry, do you have uh, some thoughts that came up when you were listening to him? I would think that it's not just policy, politics, and laws, but also culture needs to change. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm, I'm hoping, uh, Governor, one day I get to shake your hand. Uh, I like the way that you think already. Um, absolutely, it's tied into the culture. It is part of our DNA. Uh, I don't know any, uh, any poor person, uh, let alone African-American, that uh, has grown up in what we call the hood that does not see the police as an occupying force. Uh, and that has gotten much worse uh, since civil rights, where we are now militarizing the police, uh, giving them the latest advanced weapons so that they can do what uh, the president uh, talks about in terms of dominating a community, which is really part of the problem, I think. Uh, when you take a look at it from a cultural perspective, I don't think there's anybody uh, in 2020 who would argue our history uh, and what that has done to the psyche of the American people. Uh, we are now confronting, in very real ways, uh, currents that have been underlying, undergirding our society uh, for decades, if not a couple of centuries. So the toppling of the, the Confederate uh, monuments, uh, monuments that are seen by a, a, some portion of our population as being heroes, but viewed by most of the population, I think, today as people who, per, who perpetuated the, the kinds of institutional dynamics that we're witnessing now to keep people subjugated, because that's really what this is, is about. We're talking about, and, and I would like to, uh, from my perspective, just introduce the idea uh, that, that race is not a broad enough uh, construct that we're really talking about the idea of white supremacy and the idea of of one group of people being uh, being more supreme or having supremacy uh, over others, and and that to me is fundamentally the problem. Racism is just one of those tools that white supremacists use to keep people divided, uh, to to uh, create fear in our society, and all of those things begin to translate into really trauma. When I see pictures of a Klansman, I have a very visceral reaction uh, to what I'm seeing. And I'm sure that they have a visceral reaction when they see me. But that's part of the problem. We've, we've gotten so wrapped up in not just our differences, but this idea that one group is inferior and another group is superior, and it's keeping us fighting uh, at that, at that uh, really disgusting level. I also believe that racism is tied to, to a whole idea of class struggle. It's used to keep us divided so that poor people are fighting amongst themselves and we can't turn our energy uh, to really looking at the institutions and how we're all being affected uh, by it. And then obviously racism produces discrimination in all forms. We're not just talking about what happens between black people and white people, which is a huge conflict that we have to resolve if we're going to move forward uh, as a society. But all of those things 
add to the amount of trauma that everybody is feeling because now we're all at a, at a heightened state of anxiety that in, in today's world is complicated by the mess that we have around the pandemic. So all these things are tied together. Uh, they're all connected uh, to, uh, to a whole system that is designed to suppress rather than to create optimal conditions for people to improve and, get, and better their lives. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM, Many Voices, One Station. Listen worldwide online from ksqd.org homepage or catch up on previous shows by visiting the KSQD Be Bold America webpage or through your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Tune in to KSQD this Sunday for State of Mind, hosted by Santa Cruz licensed psychotherapist Deborah Sloss. This month's topic is the power of forgiveness in mental health. Deborah's guests are researcher and author Frederick Luskin and Gita Ryle, a Holocaust survivor and public speaker. Gita was separated from her parents while fleeing from the Nazis during World War II. This trauma later manifested in physical and mental health symptoms, and as an adult, she embarked on a long road of self-discovery. Gita learned that forgiveness of herself and others was essential to healing. Dr. Luskin will discuss the profound power of forgiveness in mental health and help us understand what forgiveness is and isn't, why it is of value, and ways to access it. Join us for new understandings and seeds of possibility on State of Mind this Sunday evening at 6 p.m. here on KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. Today, our topic is a national reckoning on racism. We're speaking with former Alabama Governor Don Siegelman, author of Stealing Our Democracy. Find more out at donsiegelman.org. And we're also speaking with Walden University professor Dr. Dr. Pettis Perry, producer of the Creating a Meaningful Life in the Af Aftermath of Trauma webinar. Find his webinar leak, link <laughs> on Be Bold America's KSQD webpage. Well, Dr. Siegelman, um, you probably have some ideas about broadening out racism, but we've also been experiencing Confederate statues coming down and Donald Trump using the Confederate flag and, as an, a symbol of freedom of speech. Um, what are your views on that as well? Well, let me take just a minute, Jill, and, and sure. to give your give your listeners a little background on on me and and sure. how I got to be how I got to be who I am and, and um, how I got into politics and why and it's it's relevant to the subject we're talking about. But first, uh, I was raised by two wonderful parents. I was blessed to have a, a mother who. Uh, taught me the the meaning of giving uh, of myself to help others. And uh, my dad, who came home from work early one day, and um, I was surprised to see him, and uh, he, he asked me to s come sit with him at the kitchen table. And he said, I heard you used a bad word today. This was when I was about 11, 12 years old. I was, it was 19, 1955, I believe right after Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, and there was a, a stirring of, 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 you know, racism and racist talk. And uh, I had used 
the N-word. And my dad said, I want you to go get the dictionary and bring it back in here. And I want you to look that word up. And so I, I went, I got the dictionary, brought it back to the kitchen table and fumbled through it and couldn't find it. And he said, let me give you a hint. It's not in there. He said, now look up the word Negro. Keep in mind, this is 1955. I did. And he said, he said, Donnie, that's the only word we use. You don't ever use that other word. He said, I don't care what other people think, but when you see a Negro man on the street, you address him as sir. And when you see a Negro woman, you address them as ma'am. And um, when I was in college, I, I worked against George Wallace. Uh, we, had, we were investigated by the House on, uh, on American Activities Committee, uh, we, uh, I worked for the first African-American, Charles Evers, who ran for governor of Mississippi. I went to his inauguration in, in Fayette, Mississippi in 1969. And I'd been in Mississippi a couple of times with Alan Lowenstein to, to recruit, uh, delegates who are committed to finding a peace candidate to run against LBJ in 1968. Um, I was a, uh, Jane Fonda, Robert Kennedy, anti-war liberal who probably shouldn't have been elected to anything, much less, in, well, in Alabama. And um, so, but I was elected Secretary of State, Attorney General, Lieutenant Governor, and Governor. Uh, I fought for voting rights. I remember one headline that said, Ronald Reagan opposes Don Sewell, Secretary of State supports an extension of the Voting Rights Act. That was in 1982. I opened the door for African-Americans to run for office in Alabama by uh, forcing single-member districts. Um, I, I prevented the state legislature from re-raising the Confederate flag over the Capitol. And when I was governor, um, I took in the heart of Dixie off our license plates. Oh, I forgot to mention, when I was, when I was uh, president of the student body at Alabama, uh, I brought together the presidents of the uh, predominantly uh, historically black uh, universities and colleges, and we formed a coalition and put together a resolution to uh, demand that the, the song Dixie not be played at our college football games. And we, we ended the playing of Dixie in, in the South during, in Alabama during the 60s. So my, my point in saying all this is, We've, we've got to take steps, and if I can do this in Alabama, it can be done. <laughs> There's really not an excuse for anybody anywhere not to be able to, one, be elected, two, take some bold action to, to try to end systemic racism. Um, Donald Trump's you know, uh, use of the Confederate flag as freedom of speech, yes, it is freedom of speech in the sense that it stands for really bad speech, I mean, that we don't want to hear anymore. You know, it stands for slavery, and it stands for the abuse of, of, the horrible abuse of people, and we just, we don't need that. We don't need to wave that flag anymore. It is, it is time to put that flag in a museum as well as these Confederate statues. Um, you know, it's, it's, we've just got to move beyond that, just the same as we've got to move beyond police being warriors and, and move them into the position of being guardians of the community. Dr. Pettis? Uh, I, no, I would agree. 
um, it's uh, it's long overdue that we uh, we change the narrative. Um, we have to call things as they are. The statues and the other vestiges of uh, of the slave era are not doing us any good. Uh, we have people who are trying to hold on to their privilege. Uh, they want to keep things the way that they are, uh, and the rest of us are fighting against that. I'm, I'm not willing to go backwards. We've come too far. It's taken us too long to get where we are today. Uh, and I, I want to uh, take advantage to capitalize on what Trump has done to divide this country. He has been a gift of sorts. A lot of people have gotten hurt and killed because of his mismanagement and absent leadership. But he has gotten us to a discussion that we in the African-American community have been trying to raise for more, more than 400 years. He has gotten us to this point where people are fed up with what slavery means, what are the bad parts of our history uh, have been, and I think people are ready to turn a corner in some very real ways to reshape or reimagine America. We have a golden opportunity to, to take advantage of this momentum. So that's the gift. Donald Trump is a, is a symptom of a larger problem, and that larger problem is white supremacy and the institutions that were constructed to keep white supremacy in place. And I think we're at a point, finally, where people are taking a hard look. And what I see on the streets are multi-ethnic groups that have come together to say enough is enough. Our veterans are out there. Our mothers are out there. Our young people are out there. Our old people are out there. We're tired of this. We've come a long way. We cannot go backwards. At this point, we're a laughing stock of the world. We are, our values that we are promoting are, are divisive, hateful, and all the things that we fought two wars over. I have, I, it's, it, it, every day I wake up saying, how much more do we have to take before we put this thing to rest and get it behind us? Because we are wasting valuable energy, valuable energy that we could be putting to fixing the problems that actually exist and that will make a difference for all of us. We need to stop thinking about me and start thinking about we, because we're all in this boat together. When they look at the U.S., they see all of us. They don't see black people, white people, you know, or whatever other kind of people. They see American people. And however I go, we all go. So we need to, we need to get this stuff under control, take advantage of this, do what the governor is suggesting in terms of identifying the problems in our institutions, and then creating something that is, is much better that will, that will enable us to be much more productive as a society and stop these games because we don't like each other uh, for whatever reason. So all I'm, on, I'm all on board uh, with the idea of dismantling institutions and remaking them so that they do become more effective for us uh, in our society. And that means moving the police from an occup occupying force to guardians. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Our topic is a national reckoning on racism. We're speaking with former Alabama Governor Don Siegelman, author of Stealing Our Democracy, which is now a hot top five on the National Review of Books, and his website to learn more is donsiegelman.org. And we're speaking with Walden University Leadership and Management Professor Dr. Pettis Perry, producer of Self-Care in Times of Crisis, Living in a Topsy-Turvy World webinar. Hi, I'm Tom Hartman, your host for Progressive Talk on K-Squid, 90.7 FM, community radio for the Central Coast, 4 p.m. weekdays. KSQD is a vital media resource for listeners in Santa Cruz and Monterey counties and worldwide on the web. Please help support this station by making a contribution to keep the station thriving. Go to ksqd.org and give what you can to help keep shows like mine coming to you daily at 90.7 FM. You know, with six large corporations owning most of the media, it's essential that listeners support grassroots, locally run radio stations like KSQD. Community radio is responsive to its listeners and isn't afraid to challenge the status quo. Please join me, Tom Hartman, in supporting K-Squid 90.7 FM community radio for the Central Coast by making your pledge today online at ksqd.org. That's 90.7 FM K-Squid. Catch me right here at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Thank you, and tag your it. KSQD thanks the following recurring donors who, who support our wonderful programs by providing monthly contributions. Jeremy Bott, Lori Brooks, Nancy Collins, Joseph Eaton, Patricia Zilius, Manuel Zavala, and Robert Staten. You inspire us to give our very best at KSQD 90.7 FM. May you also inspire others to donate on our website, ksqd.org. Now, back to our bold and impressive guests, former Governor Don Siegelman and Dr. Pettis Perry. Now, Governor Siegelman, um, what kind of changes in policies and politics and laws do you see needing to happen in, you know, to, in education and tax reform and after-school jobs? Well, let me, let me first uh, pick up where... Dr. Perry left off. Please. Um, there's, there's, there's a reason why we have so many African Americans, so many blacks in prison. There's a reason why we have 2.3 million people locked up. Uh, it's not just the war on, the war on drugs or the war on crime. It was a war on blacks because they were, uh, blacks have been stereotyped and and it is it was ingrained in the in police to to target certain individuals um i think you know if you look at the deaths of uh, elijah mclean mclean uh, mccain or tamar rice eric gardner or any of the others michael brown um it, it is you know they have they have paid they paid with their life, and now it's up to us. There cannot be any more excuses for not changing things to make things better. I want to get into the weeds just a little bit, but it's important. If the government gets 99% of the indictments they seek, 
99, getting 99% of anything is pretty extraordinary. In fact, it's, it smells of fraud. It smells of cheating. And, of course, that's exactly what's going on in, in, in the secrecy of a grand jury where there is no lawyer for the defense present, where there is no judge to object, and where there's the Supreme Court and Congress have given a blank check to prosecutors, literally, uh, uh, to withhold exculpatory evidence, evidence which would tend to free a defendant, and they've given prosecutors unlimited immunity, unqualified immunity, to uh, present false evidence to get an indictment or to get a conviction. I'm, I'm not making this up. Uh, in, in, an example, the Los Angeles Times on January the 5th, 2010, during the Obama administration, uh, David Savage, the, the legal correspondent for the L.A. Times, reported that yesterday, that would have been January the 4th, 2010, President o President Obama's lawyer, then Elena Kagan, the Solicitor General, argued to the Supreme Court that, and I quote, United States citizens do not have a constitutional right not to be framed. The, the sad part about that, two things. One, she didn't have to argue that, but she did. But she did it because it is the law, was the law, and is the law, because the Supreme Court in, 19, in 1996 uh, gave blanket immunity to prosecutors in the Embler case to do whatever they want. Eric Krasinski, the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit, said that prosecutors withholding exculpatory evidence is epidemic in America. The Department of Justice holds an umbrella of protection over all misconduct. That's why in the Equal Justice Initiative, uh, Brian Stevenson and the, the Innocence Project, uh, have have caused the release of 150 people on death row. These were people who were about to be executed for crimes they didn't commit. Why were they there in the first place? Because of prosecutorial misconduct. And we have simply got to take steps, and I propose three in my book, of ways to balance the scales of justice to ensure that people that are innocent have a fighting chance to, to, to prove their innocence. Let me just ask you, Jill, or Dr. Perry, this. Suppose one of your employees goes to the district attorney and makes up a story about you that the DA believes, uh, and they issue an indictment for embezzlement or something. It, just, it, it puts you on the defensive, and your career is ruined. Your, your friends and family start will be looking at you in a different light. You have to hire a criminal lawyer to defend you in a court. What good does it do if 97, 97%, 99% of the indictments, they get 90, 99% of the indictments, 97% of the people who are indicted plead guilty? These are mostly young men of, well, not mostly, but they're, uh, a great, great many of these are men and women of color, and, and they are facing perhaps their second felony or maybe their third felony. Maybe they got put on probation the first two felonies for small amounts, half ounce of marijuana or more, and then the third felony, they're facing 25 years to life, um, or 25 years. Um, and 
prosecutors can go in and say, look, I will offer you a deal. If you plead guilty, we'll give you 10 years. But if you, if you, don't, if you don't take this plea in the next two minutes before I walk out of this room, we're going to indict your mother, your brother, your cousins in this conspiracy, and we're going to put you all away for 25 years. So they take the plea. And many of these people, in fact, most of them, plead guilty before they get a lawyer. What good does it do to go into court once you've pled guilty to your perhaps your third felony? And the judge says, well, I understand that you pled guilty and you, you agreed to a 10-year sentence, but, you know, you have two other felonies, so I'm going to add another 10 years to that. So I'm giving you 10, 20 years instead of the 10 years you bargained for. We've just the way to cure this, and the way just the way to put an end to police violence. In if you want to, if you want to hold, you've got to start by holding police accountable for their misbehavior, for their excessive use of force, and for for murdering people like George Floyd. And you do that in the grand jury when these charges are being brought, and that's why I argue strongly that. Family members should have the right to have a lawyer present in a grand jury to hold to, as a check on truth so that the prosecutors cannot get away with claiming self-defense, cannot get away with saying, oh, we, we thought he was, he was drunk or he had, had uh, uh, marijuana in his system and he was resisting arrest. If, if, if a lawyer for the defense, for the family member is in that grand jury room, there is a better chance that police are going to be held accountable for the crimes that they actually committed. And if you, if a defendant has a lawyer in the grand jury room, there is a chance that innocent people will not be indicted, and that will that will have an impact on the the mass incarceration that we are experiencing now. Two other quick points. Every interview with every witness or target should be recorded, and those recordings turned over to the defense. And third, we need to repeal the immunity for prosecutors so that when they do lie, when they produce a witness who lies, or when they withhold exculpatory evidence, they can be sued civilly and held responsible for, for, for putting somebody in prison for 25 years that case that I was talking about initially in 2010, reported by the Los Angeles Times, that was two African-Americans who spent 25 years in prison for a crime they did not commit, and they were suing for civil damages. It was before the United States Supreme Court, and our government was defending the police. You know, we, we simply we've got, to, we've got to reverse this and, and bring some sense of justice to our criminal justice system. Pettis, over to amen. you. That's, amen. <laughs> Pettis? Yeah, that, no, amen, brother. I would absolutely agree. Uh, we have structural problems. The system has been designed to do exactly what the governor is saying. This is with intention. And it, it goes back to the earliest days uh, of our democracy. You know, as you talk about the 2.3 million uh, people that, uh, that the governor referenced, 46,000 of those are juveniles. And of that number, 38% of them are locked up because of false confessions. That's over 17,000 juveniles. 
In the case of adults, 11% have been locked up because of false confessions. That's over 220,000 inmates who are in prison based on a false confession. The whole system is designed once, once they have, once the system uh, gets you in its clutches, it is designed to keep you there. It is not based on justice. It is based on facts of law and how those facts of law get interpreted and how the system manipulates the facts to get convictions. This is a very serious matter. And I think it's being highlighted, uh, highlighted very well with the, with the demonstrations that we're seeing about police brutality. And I think it's what's driving these statements about reimagining the police force. Get the police to do a limited job and then surround them with other uh, human service workers who can resolve some of the domestic violence issues or the mental health issues. We should be working to keep people alive, not kill them. We have this insatiable appetite. Yes. You just look around at how many people are dying unnecessarily. It's scary. People don't want to come to the United States out of fear of, of uh, police brutality. It's sickening. And we have to decide whether this is the time where we're finally going to get rid of things like unqualified immunity. We can't have a system that, per that protects the perpetrators. The perpetrators need to be convicted if they, if they perpetrate a crime. Just as any law-abiding citizen who might have committed a crime uh, gets convicted. But that be a fair playing field. And the only way to do that is to change our, our, uh, our culture and the way that we view the, the uh, aspects of our, of our culture, like our policies and practices. These can all be changed. But we have, to, we have to move away again from the idea that one group of people, whether they're, they're poor and low income or whether they're a person of color, uh, is denigrated uh, by the people who are supposed to be protecting them. This is not a game. People are dying, uh, as we've seen in the last six months, just one after the other. Other. Every time I turn on the TV, I'm seeing another person of color who has been killed or uh, had violence perpetrated against them by the police. One guy uh, was videoed with his hands up. He got kicked in the back by a police officer. Did nothing. We can't allow that behavior to continue. This, this is stoppable, and we have to stop it. We, can, we cannot play with this. Uh, this is something that is... It is inhumane in terms of our treatment of people, uh, whether they're incarcerated already, whether they're being incarcerated, or whether they're out on the streets and are so afraid to move uh, because they feel that, like they may get shot uh, just for, for doing something uh, like being present. And, and it's so bad, Jill, if I might just share a quick story. I have a friend who's a big African-American male. Uh, and uh, he's a police officer. And we were talking one day about the fear that we both have uh, when we drive someplace. And he said when he is not in his uniform, he is just as afraid as anybody else. That said something when a police officer will make that kind of admission. Wow, that is powerful. 
I wondered about that. I would sleep in my uniform. I would have it on all the time. Um, You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM, Many Voices, One Station. Listen worldwide online from ksqd.org homepage or catch up on programs by visiting the KSQD Be Bold American page or from your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Today our topic is a national reckoning on racism, and we're speaking with former Alabama Governor Don Siegelman, author of Stealing Our Democracy, and find more out about him at donsiegelman.org, and we're also speaking with Walden University Professor Dr. Pettis Perry, producer of the Creating a Meaningful Life in the Aftermath of Trauma webinar. Find his webinar link on Be Bold America's KSQD website page. Um, one thing, uh, Pettis, too, is that you were talking about a story, and I, fit, I think it fits right in with the keep, start, stop, uh, what people, what listeners can keep doing, stop doing, and start doing. You shared a story about, um, uh, to me, about moving to your community in the state of Washington. Can you share that? I know it fits right in. And then um, we'll go to Governor Siegelman again. Sure. I'll, I'll try to uh, make it brief. Um, when I first moved to Washington State, I picked a point on a map, and I wanted to be close to the Canadian border, so I picked the border town of Blaine, which is just north of where I now reside. And when I got into the community, uh, it turns out that I actually landed in, a, in an Aryan Nation community. And as I was searching for this home, uh, because I was told the day I was moving in that there was a party, I would go up the street and knock on the door. People would come to the door and look at me, and I would say, well, this is who I am. I'm looking for this party. And they say, well, it's not here. Go up the street. So I would do that, and it, and it happened four or five times until I found the house. And I got to the house where uh, the party was, and I knock on the door, and the, the man of the house comes to the door, and he said, what do you want? And I said, well, so-and-so told me about a party, uh, and people tell me that it might be here if so-and-so here. And he said, yeah, he's here. Come on in. So I walked in the door um, and uh, sat on the couch, and the, the gentleman started to interrogate me. Uh, and he tried to push every racial button, every hate button that he could push. And this went on for about three and a half hours. And then finally he said, well, you know, what do you do? And I said, well, I, I teach. And he said, well, who do you teach? And I took my finger and I stuck it in his face and I said, people like you. And he backed up. And I learned shortly after that that his M.O. is, is, is to create fear in people that he doesn't like. And he closed out by saying, well, you know, if you think I don't like black people, you can't be here uh, when my older brother gets here. Well, one day I was at the house. Older brother walks in, brown shirt, swastika on the back. He looks at me and keeps moving. And a few days later, I was back at the house, and the, the gentleman said, well, my brother said you're okay, so you can be here. And the, the final part to this story is by the we, time we got to the end of the year, got to Christmas, I was sitting in my, my usual spot in the house, and his son saw me, his youngest son, and he came running over to me put his arms around my neck and said, Pettis, I love you. 
And for me, being who I am, after having gone through what I had gone through, knowing that his kid loved me for who I was was all that mattered. And I looked at his dad, and I thought to myself, I don't need you. I got your son. <laughs> Governor Siegelman, thoughts? Wow, that's a powerful story. Um, my thoughts on, um, on what we can do and should be doing is we need to be focusing on winning, <laughs> winning elections because if, if we don't win elections, uh, we don't change things or things will not change for the better. So it's up to each of us to find candidates in whom we believe and trust and work for them and help them get elected. For me, it's uh, uh, pushing for free college education and universal early learning. It's for uh, making sure that we have candidates who recognize that health care should be a right, that we live in the richest country in the world, and nobody should go to bed hungry or homeless or without health care. Uh, not the not the poor, not the mentally uh, uh, challenged or physically challenged, and not people in prison. We need a a president who is going to expand economic opportunities, expand and increase the minimum wage, create those after school jobs that we were talking about earlier, so that young people have a place to go after school where they can, you know, learn the value and ethic of, of hard work. Um, and or at least to have something to do that will will benefit them, but by giving kids the hope and dream of having uh, a free college education that will help keep them in school and keep keep them out of trouble and, and encourage them to to make their grades. Um, of course, we need so many other things, and our, uh, you've got to have a president and who's going to fight for a fair tax system. Uh, it's, it's clearly something wrong when three families control 50% of the wealth or the 1% control 92%, and while the rest of us and working families are struggling to make ends meet and, you know, paying their fair share. And, you know, for me, I'm, I'm focused on ensuring that the next president uh, change our criminal justice system uh, because it's it's just we've got to we've just got to stop uh, targeting people because of the color of their skin and uh, sending people to prison for uh, these incredibly long sentences that destroy the lives of their children and their families and uh, we just we've got to make those changes. Well, and and elect people that uh, will have the strength and courage to face the enduring racial disparities that few, that's been fueled by decades of unequal treatment and unequal opportunity and the structural barriers uh, to job, such as job discrimination and poor schools. And it's, it may be very difficult, um, and that's why we need these people in office, because I read that in the PRRI um, study that 49% of white Americans believe that they're discriminated against as bad as minorities are. And um, Pettis, thoughts on what Governor, Governor Siegelman said or the PRRI results? Uh, um, there's absolutely no doubt that income in zip code will either increase or decrease your chances for success 
uh, and also whether or not you're going to end up in prison, end up in the system. And once you get into the system, its clutches won't let you go. They'll be the next thing and the thing after that. I uh, spent a uh, couple of years working as the director of a program called Project New Pride, which was a diversion program. And for every child that we had come into us with a learning disability, we found four more. So many of the people, particularly the young, are entering prison uh, out of not being able to function in school because of some form of disability or another. The whole system is broken. We are fragmented. We don't have a comprehensive service delivery strategy uh, for people, whether they are on the fringe of prison uh, or are being arrested. Our schools are broken. Uh, we have such disparity between our inner city schools and those in the suburbs. I coached at a school in Oakland, California for five years. Our, our budget was so broken that we had high school kids sharing uniforms and sharing mouthpieces. That's sickening. We, we have to find a way to get back to putting money into schools where they're needed. We have to do something uh, about fixing the, the systems that support young people. As a faculty member, I see students coming from all over the world. I work for a global institution. We, we uh, have an enrollment policy in which we will allow some students to come in who may be deficient in skills, and we have to help those students so that they can succeed, can, can succeed in college. Not everybody's going to go to college. There's only about a quarter of the population. There's only about 4% of the population that goes on to get a doctorate. But we have to do everything we can to have a literate society. We are seeing the results of large segments of our population not being able to discern fact from fiction, who can think for themselves critically and make sense of data and put it to use uh, for their benefit. And one of the roles that our schools plays is to create a, a, a breadth of understanding across many disciplines prior to moving into, let's say, in your junior year of college, where you begin to delve more deeply into a particular subject matter. But people who, who refuse to learn are detrimental to this society, and you can see it being played out by the ridiculous decisions that many of the leaders are making during this pandemic. They're, they're pulling their data out of smoke. It does not make any sense. And we are intentionally putting people at jeopardy because people do not know how to make decisions. And as the governor was talking about, so much of what we do is tied to politics that we're killing each other because we can't figure out how to work together to solve these problems. We should not be where we are today in this country, the richest country in the world, and we're still fighting over something that was settled in 1865. It needs to end if we're going to become a healthy country again. It is a tragedy. In, in the minute I have left, Governor Siegelman, a last word? Oh, I just, it's been a pleasure uh, being with Dr. Pettis. Uh, Terry, this evening, and, and you, Jill, I think, uh, you know, we've given your listeners 
of food for thought, but we have, we've got to challenge our elected officials, and even after the election, we've got to stay after them and insist that they move forward and be even bolder in their policies after the election than they have been during their speeches leading up to the election. It is going to take boldness and a lot of courage. And I have so enjoyed this conversation. I wish we had more time. There are so many more aspects to this. It's an intense and deep subject. Um, maybe we can do it again in the, in, soon in the future. I want to thank uh, Be Bold America's program engineer, Emily Donham, and give a huge thank you to our bold guest, Dr. Pettis Perry and former Alabama Governor Don Siegelman. Thank you again for coming back on the program, Governor. Um, and thank you, Dr. Perry, for returning to the show as well. Next on Be Bold America will be Me the People. You deserve to feel comfy in your country. So says the author of Me the People, Lisa Fontana, and her alter ego citizen cupcake. Are you interested in your country but can't take the politics of it all? If you're unsure about civics, registering to vote, or about how American government works, then Lisa's character, Citizen Cupcake, and her 60-second videos are your answer. Wonder what the rule of law means or what the powers of the federal government are? Then her book, Me the People, and its accompanying 60-second civics lessons that don't contain spin, stress, or judgment will help you to be comfy in your country. Citizen Cupcake, also known as Lisa Fontana, will talk about her video clips that just may be the answer to these questions and more for your entire family. So please join me and this special guest on Be Bold America Sunday, August 16th at 5 p.m. Our future depends on it. Want to listen to a program later? Find the Be Bold America podcast on KSQD website or at Apple Podcast, Anchor FM, Google, Spotify, Breakers, Radio Public, Overcast, and Pocket Cast. You're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz, many voices, one station. Listen worldwide online at ksqd.org. Stay tuned for State of Mind with Deborah Sloss. My name is Jill Cody, and thank you for listening to Be Bold America. Until next time, keep, stop, start. <laughs>